0: Your word teaches us about who he is. Your word teaches us about what he does. And your word teaches us how we must respond to that. Lord, this afternoon as we come to this amazing chapter in the Gospel of John, my prayer is that you would show us Christ. That you would show us our Savior who has redeemed us. Who went after us when we were far away. And who is still doing that even today. I do pray for every soul here, those who will ever listen to this, that if anyone is still running away from you trying to find satisfaction somewhere else, I pray that you would go after them, that you would come alongside of them on their path and reveal yourself to them and give your amazing grace to believe and to accept the gift that you so freely offer. We pray for every heart here, pray for myself, that you would hide me behind your word and may your word speak forth to each one of our hearts, for your glory in Christ's name. Amen. I invite you to turn to the Gospel of John, chapter 4. This afternoon, I want to bring you a message entitled, Thirsty No More. Gospel of John is one of those gospels, or John is one of those gospel writers who Tells explicitly why he wrote his gospel. In John chapter 20, verse 31, he says, but these things have been written. is not a cool statement. (laughs) You know why this was written. He says, these things have been written so that you may believe. Believe what? Believe that Jesus is the Christ, is the Messiah, the Son of God. And that believing you may have life in his name. Therefore, every event, every story in the Gospel of John, one way or another serves this purpose to show us who Christ is. And that includes John chapter 4. John chapter 4 is one of those fascinating accounts, perhaps one of the most fascinating in the entire Bible, at least in the New Testament. In this simple story, or this account that took place, Jesus destroys every social norm and shocks everyone who is involved in the story. The placement of this account is also very strategic in the Gospel of John. You remember John chapter 3 is Jesus' meeting with Nicodemus. Nicodemus was this Jewish rabbi, the teacher of the law, a theologian, a devout Jewish man, no doubt a wealthy man was part of the social elite in Israel and in this chapter Jesus meets with an immoral uneducated poor outcast Samaritan woman the contrast couldn't been couldn't have been more stark you have this religious guy and Jesus is preaching to him you must be born again and then you have this outcast woman and it is for the first time in the Gospel of John and perhaps in the entire ministry of Jesus that Jesus explicitly reveals to her that he is the Messiah who was promised in the Old Testament. You know, even through the Gospels, as you read through the Gospel of John or through any of the Gospels, Jesus didn't even tell his disciples from the beginning of his ministry. They had to discover that. And even until the end, Jesus is, keeps telling them. And later on, pretty much the end of his ministry, he says, hey, who do people say that I am? And then he tells him who he is. But here, for the first time, he meets this woman. And you have a climax of this story in verse 26 when Jesus says, I am the Messiah promised in the Old Testament. As a result of her conversion of this one woman, revival broke out. And we know at the end of the chapter, it says, many have believed in Christ. One person summarized this chapter this way. He said, this is a story about a nobody who told everybody about a somebody who can save anybody. That's what this chapter is about. As we read this story and as we try to look at the details, I want you to walk away with one truth. And the main point of this afternoon is this. We must worship God in spirit and in truth because such worship glorifies God and satisfies man. We must worship God the way he prescribed, in spirit and in truth, because such worship glorifies God and, and satisfies man. As we, as we unpack this story, we'll observe three realities that are cre- clearly presented in this text. The first is this. Holy God is seeking worshipers. That is so clear in this text, and that's what he starts with, and that's what he concludes with. In fact, in verse 23, he says explicitly that God is seeking worshipers for himself. That's what God is doing. Now, while that is true, that is countered by a second reality, and that reality is this. Sinful man is seeking to satisfy self. While God is looking for worshipers, people are seeking to satisfy himself. And the third Truth that we'll see in this text is that man's satisfaction is a byproduct of true worship. Man's satisfaction is a byproduct of true worship. I might burst your bubble today, but you have to know that the ultimate aim of your life is not to be happy, but to be holy. God does not exist to make you happy. If all you are pursuing is that you would be satisfied and that you would be happy and you come to Jesus because he's going to make you happy, he's going to disappoint you. This is not how this works. But on the other hand, it is a good news that happiness and holiness are not mutually exclusive. They go hand in hand. When you are holy, you will be happy. And that is the point here. Genuine worship. True worship glorifies God while at the same time satisfying men. Join me as I read John chapter 4. We'll read first 30 verses and then we'll read beginning in verse 39. John writes, Therefore when the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself was not baptizing, but his disciples were, he left Judea and went away, Again, into Galilee. And he had had to pass through Samaria. So he came to the city of Samaria called Sychar, near the parcel of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, being wearied from his journey, was sitting thus by the well. It was about the sixth hour. There came a woman of Samaria to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Therefore, the Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, being a Jew, ask me for a drink, since I am a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered and said to her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. She said to him, sir. Have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where then do you get the living water? You're not greater than our father Jacob, are you? Who gave us the well and drank of it himself and his sons and his cattle? Jesus answered and said to her, Everyone who thirsts, everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall never thirst. But the water that I give him will become in him a well of water, springing up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water, so, that I, so I will not be thirsty nor come all the way here to draw. He said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered and said, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You have correctly said, I have no husband. For you have five husbands. And the one whom you now have is not your husband. This you have said truly. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped in this mountain. And you people say that in Jerusalem is the place where men are to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, an hour is coming where neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know for salvation is from the Jews. But an hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such such people, the Father seeks to be his worshipers. God is spirit. And those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know the Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When that one comes, he will declare all things to us. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you, am he? At this point, his disciples came, and they were amazed that he hadn't been speaking with a woman. Yet no one said, what do you seek, or why do you speak with her? So the woman left her water pot and went into the city and said to the man, Come, see a man who told me all the things that I have done. This is not the Christ, is it? They went out of the city and were coming to him. Verse 39. From the city, many of the Samaritans believed in him. Because of the word of the woman who testified, he told me all the things that I have done. So when the Samaritans came to Jesus, they were asking him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. Many more believed because of his word. They were saying to the woman, It is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we we have heard for ourselves and know that this one is indeed the Savior of the world. We begin with the first truth. Holy God. Is seeking worshipers. Now we read this entire chapter, and the first six verses are here for one reason. They're here in order to provide setting for us, in order to describe the situation in which this took place. We know Jesus began his ministry in Galilee, first couple chapters of John. Then he traveled south to Judea, and now we're told in verse 1 that his ministry has grown in size. People have started to believe the disciples were baptizing people, and there was some controversy. There was some controversy with the disciples of John in the previous chapter in verse 26, and they, the disciples of John, came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he was with you beyond the Jordan to whom you have testified, behold, he is baptizing, and all the people are coming to him. They're not coming to us anymore. They're all going to him. John's disciples were saying that. The Pharisees also took notice of Jesus' ministries, and they heard that his ministry is expanding. And now all of a sudden, they started comparing Jesus' ministry with John's ministry. And so to avoid this controversy, we're told that Jesus decides to travel back north. Now, this is very early in his ministry. And verse 4 is a very important, important verse for this section i want to draw your attention to it because when john writes this he says in verse 4 and he had to pass through samaria now if you look at a map on the back of your bible you will see that there's judea if you're traveling to galilee you're traveling north in order for you to get to galilee you have to travel through samaria now when he says here that he had to pass through samaria That's not to say that that was the only option Jesus had. In fact, if you were a devout Jew, one of the devout Jews, then you would avoid this place like a plague. If you were a Jew who's traveling from Judea going to Galilee, what you would do is you would cross the Jordan, and you would travel on the other side of the Jordan to pass Samaria, and then you would cross back into Galilee. You would avoid Samaria at all costs. And yet John says here, that Jesus had to travel through Samaria. You see, the Jews preferred traveling through Gentile territory rather than traveling through Samaria. Now we have to ask the question, why did the Jews despise Samaritans? Now this hatred was longstanding. By this time, when Jesus is sitting at this well, this has been going on for at least 700 years you recall that the kingdom of israel had split after solomon there was northern kingdom there was southern kingdom northern kingdom was was so wicked in fact they didn't have a single king of whom it was written that he did well in the sight of the lord every single king was wicked as a result of that in 722 bc assyrians came and they basically wiped them out They took the people, the elite, the educated, the rich, they took them all to Babylon, and they brought people from different nations, pagans, and they brought them back and settled them in the land, which has become known as Samaria. These people who, pagans, who intermarried the Jews who remained in the land, became known as Samaritans. They adopted pagan practices. They started syncretizing the religion you had Jewish worship because they still accepted Torah. And at the same time, they adopted practices of those pagan nations who now lived in the land. Devout Jews hated Samaritans. They hated Samaritans because, first of all, they intermarried with pagans, disobeying the law. They worshipped pagan deities. They tried to put, blend those religions. And if you were a devout Jew, you hated Samaritans. And we see that from different accounts throughout the gospel. And so when John says here that Jesus had to pass through Samaria, he's intentionally drawing our attention to this account. Because Jesus had to go there because Jesus had divine appointment there. That's why Jesus had to go there. It wasn't because that was his only option, but Jesus had an appointment with this woman. Now we just read verse 23. And in verse 23, Jesus explicitly says that the father is seeking worshipers for himself. Why do people worship God? Is it because all of a sudden they figure it out? Is it because they're smarter than others who haven't figured it out? No, it's because the Father is seeking worshipers for himself. And the Father arranges the circumstances in such a way that he brings people who would reveal God to them. And when when God is revealed to them, God saves them. That's what happened in this case. Jesus meets this woman who would never hear about Messiah, and he orchestrates the events of his life in such a way that she would get to hear the gospel. Father is seeking worshipers for himself, and for this only reason, Jesus had to pass through Samaria. Jesus says that my will is to do the will of my father later on in the text, right? In this case, Jesus was doing the will of the Father as he's traveling along with his disciples to Galilee through Samaria. We're told that as they're traveling, they come to this well, famous well. He can go back all the way to Genesis and read about this well. We're told that this is Jacob's well. And Jesus being wearied from the journey. Now again, humanity of Christ and deity of Christ on display. Humanity of Christ, he's just so wiped out, so tired from a journey that he's sitting at the well. And yet at the same time, he knows everything about this woman. Jesus is God. Jesus is man. And here he is he is sitting at the well. Now John has given us all these details so that we can imagine the story. Picture Jesus sitting at the well on a hot summer day. He also adds that it was the sixth hour. Sixth hour, 12 o'clock at noon. The sun is hot, and Jesus is at this well. Everything is orchestrated in the sovereignty of God for this divine meeting that must take place. God is looking for worshipers, and that is why Jesus is at this well. Let's look at the second reality. Sinful man is seeking satisfaction. Look at verse 7. There came a woman of Samaria to draw water. Now we know from the rest of the scriptures that it was the job of woman to do this. I'm not sure why. It's not an easy task. To go all the way out there to the well to bring water and bring that for your entire household. That's how it was. And there wouldn't be anything strange about this event that a woman came to draw water if John had not mentioned the location and if John had not mentioned that it was the sixth hour, noon. You see, going to the well wasn't just one of those things, though I just gotta go get some water. Going to the well was a social activity. This is where the woman would go either early in the morning when it was not hot or late in the afternoon, or late in the evening. And this is where you would have your greeting time with all your women. This is where the news was discussed. This is where everything happened. Now, when John says that Jesus is sitting at the well, 12 o'clock, noon, on the hot day, and this woman came to draw water. Now, we know that this well is not even in the city. I'm sure there were wells closer to where this woman lived. But Jesus is sitting outside of the city on this road. How do we know that? Because we're told that the disciples went into the city to buy food. Jesus is outside. Later on in verse 28, we read that the woman left her water pot and she went into the city. This woman, on this afternoon hot day, went all the way out there, somewhere outside of the city, in order to get some water for herself. Now we'll see in a minute why that is, but... What Jesus says to her startles her. This woman comes and Jesus says to her, give me a drink. Again, we might read this. so What's the big deal? Give me a drink. Now, what's her response? Look, she says, how is it that you, being a Jew, ask me for a drink since I'm a Samaritan woman? There are at least three problems with this request. First of all, he says, you are a Jew. I'm a Samaritan. Jews have nothing to do with Samaritans. Jews don't talk to Samaritans. Jews don't hang out with Samaritans. Samaritans don't help Jews. You are a Jew and you're asking me, Samaritan, for water? Not only that, you are a Jewish man and I am a Samaritan woman. Men don't talk to women publicly. That's the culture. You don't talk, you don't talk to your wife, let alone to some woman at the well. You are a Jewish man, rabbi, and you are talking to me? That's why in verse 27, when the disciples show up, what amazes them? Look at verse 27. They were amazed that he had been speaking with a woman. And we read, like, what's the big deal? You talk to a woman. Not that time. Not in that culture. Jesus is Jewish man. And here he is talking to this woman. Third, you want to use my water pot to drink some water? A devout Jew would never take anything from Samaritan, let alone be being defiled, walking through their territory. And here you are, you're going to take her water pot and defile yourself by drinking from that pot? That's why she's so amazed. Like, how in the world you're asking me for a drink? Now, just as a footnote here, you read this and you could see that Jesus didn't care much for cultural taboos. He didn't care much for traditions when they violated the word of God or when they were not according to the word of God. He breaks every norm of society. And he simply says to this woman, give me a drink. Why? Because he has a higher purpose. Jesus is not just there because he's thirsty. From what we know, she never gives him water by the time the story is done. She drops her water pot and she runs back to the city. Jesus is getting at something. And so when she says that to him, why are you asking me? In verse 10, Jesus says, if you knew the gift of God, and who it is that who says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. You see, with this answer, Jesus shifts from natural water to spiritual reality. In essence, he's saying, woman, listen, you you don't understand which one of us is thirsty here. You don't understand that. Because if you knew who I am, and if you knew what I have, then you would be asking me, not me asking you. That's what Jesus is saying here. Now, he says here, if you knew the gift of God, what is the gift of God? What exactly is he referring to in this text? Now, we see that later on in this text, he says in verse 10, You would have asked me, and I would have given you what? I would have given you living water. I would have given that to you as a gift. What is living water? Now, last Sunday, we heard about the difference between reservoirs and the rivers. Reservoirs store water. And living water often referred to the springs or brooks, the running water, the living water. Now, even when Jesus says that I would have given you a living water, he's not necessarily referring to this water, to the spring or to this brook. He says, I could give you something. Now, this well that they're sitting sitting by, it's deep, 100 feet. And the water is supplied to the well by a spring. And Jesus is saying to her, listen, I have access to something better than this well. I have access to something deeper than this well. And all the way through the story, as you read this, Jesus is talking about a different reality that she can't even connect to, that she can't even comprehend. And yet Jesus is saying, I have something to offer to you. I want to give you living water. Now, a good thing for us is that John mentions living water one more time. Turn to John chapter 7. In John chapter 7, Jesus goes to Jerusalem. And on the last day when they're celebrating the Feast of Booths, that is when they were celebrating God's provision for them in the wilderness, provision of bread and provision of water. On the last day of the feast, we're reading John chapter 7, verse 37. John writes, now on the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood up and cried out. And you remember what they're celebrating. He says, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the Spirit says, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. And just in case you are not sure what that is, John clarifies, but this he spoke of the Spirit. Whom those who believed in him were to receive. For the spirit has not yet descended because Jesus was not yet glorified. What is living water? He says it is the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit who comes into a life of a person who's dead in the sins, who regenerates him, gives him a new life, and indwells that person. Jesus is offering salvation to this woman. He says, if you realize what I have, if you realize what I can give to you, you would be asking me, and I would have given it to you. Now notice how willing Jesus is to give. He says, you would have asked me, and I would have given it to you. What do you have to do to get it? Oh, you be good? Do good? Go to church? Jump through this hoop or that? No. He says, all you got to do is you got to ask. And if you ask me, he says, I would have given it to you. You don't work for it. You don't deserve it. He says, I am offering this to you freely and I give this to you. (laughs) This woman has a hard time shifting from the natural water, because she, she just came to the well to draw some water. And Jesus was talking to her realities, and she's like, doesn't, doesn't get it. And she's still on a natural level. And so in verse 11, he says, she says here, and he said to her, Sir, you have nothing to draw with. And the well is deep. Notice she can't connect. He's talking about something else. He's talking about spiritual reality. And she's still talking about water. She's still talking about well. He says, you, you, you got problem. You can't give me water. Why can't you give me water? Because you have nothing to go down the well with to get some water for me. You can't give it to me. Sir, you have a problem. This says, where then do you get this living water? Now, she understood on the physical level what Jesus is talking about. She understood that physically what Jesus was saying to her, physical sense, Jesus is offering something to her. Now, the spring is deep. She, he, he has nothing. He's sitting Without anything by the well, he said to you, I want to give you the living water. And so she says to him in verse 12, you're not greater than our father Jacob, are you? Who gave us the well and drank of it himself and his sons and his cattle. Listen, our father Jacob. Samaritans have Jews go back to Abraham, Genesis. Our father Jacob gave us the well. And this well has been here for hundreds of years. And this well has supplied him. And this well has supplied us. And you're telling me that you can give me something better than Jacob did. You're not greater. And the the expected answer here is no. She says, you can't be greater than Jacob. Jacob is in the Bible. And you are just some traveler who's traveling through Samaria. You're not greater than him. And actually, she's wrong on both accounts. She is, because he can't give living water, even though he doesn't have anything to dip into that well. At the same time, he is greater than Jacob. And she will learn that in a minute. Now notice, look at verse 14. In verse 13, Jesus makes this contrast. Jesus answered and said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I give him shall never thirst But the water that I will give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. Notice the contrast. He says, you have to come to this well day after day after day. You get some water, you drink that water, and you are thirsty again. But what I am offering to you, you get it once and for all. This word when he says here, you will never thirst. It is impossible for you to thirst if you have tasted of the water that I I can give to you. Now obviously he's not talking about here some physical water that Jesus can give. Because even Jesus can't give you water that will keep you alive for the rest of your life. Right? So he's talking about something that is much greater, much deeper. And so she says here, she follows along. And she says, verse 13. Uh, verse 15, then woman said to him, sir, give me this water, so that I will not be thirsty, nor come all the way here to draw." Notice, again, she's still thinking in natural terms. So that sounds like a great proposition. I don't have to go all the way here to get water? Like I'm going to have a faucet at home? That's cool. Sir, give me this water. And I don't want to come all the way here. This is an irresistible offer. But she's thinking only in natural terms. Terms. Now, notice, on a physical level, if you're just like her, because we are just like her, you would understand what Jesus is saying. You would understand that Jesus is offering to you something that can fulfill you, something that can satisfy you. And she's thinking that a drinking fountain at home is a great idea. Now, just by way of illustration, many of you could relate, or maybe your parents told you, That at one time, not too long ago, people lived in houses where they didn't have central water. In order for you to have water, you have to go somewhere and bring water home. Now, it was a radical idea for someone to suggest to you that you can have a kitchen faucet at home. All you got to do is just open it, and you got water. I mean, if you're living in that condition, if you're living 2,000 years ago, that's a radical idea. But even, even today, for people who live in the third world country, it is still a radical idea that you can have some water at home. So, if you were her and you heard that Jesus says, Listen, I can give you a living water that will keep you from being thirsty, she was like, Right on, great offer, give it to me. But notice that Jesus is talking, like I said, about something that is much. Different, something that is much deeper than the water. The illustration of her thirsting after physical water is indicative of something deeper in her heart. And that's what Jesus is trying to get at. Now, it's interesting that it often happened that people who listened to Jesus, they didn't get what he was saying. He's talking about spiritual reality, and they're stuck in physical things. In In this case, Jesus is talking about spiritual thirst, and she's talking about physical water. If you just flip a couple chapters, go to John chapter 6. In John chapter 6, Jesus is talking about bread from heaven. In John 6, 35, he says, Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it is not Moses who has given you bread out of heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread out of heaven. What is he talking about? Physical bread? No. For the bread of God is that which comes down out of heaven and gives life to the world. What is their response? They said to him, Lord, always give us that bread. I mean, it'd be nice. Manna was nice. You didn't have to work for it. Just go collect it every, every morning. Give us this bread. And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. I'm not talking about the bread that you're going to eat tomorrow morning. You need me to live. You need me to survive. And Jesus is talking to this woman and he says here, you need me to be satisfied. You need the water that only I can give to you so that you would be satisfied. But let's not be too hard on her or the people in John chapter 6 because we're just as slow and Jesus is just as patient with us. So we come to verse 16. he said to her, By the way, if you just back up for a second in verse 15, she says, sir, give me this water. In the previous section, Jesus says, hey, if you just ask me, I will give it to you. Well, she just asked. But before Jesus gives to her, before Jesus offers to her and truly explains to her what he means by his offer, he has this request for her in verse 16. He said, go, call your husband. And come here. Now this question or this request seemingly comes out of nowhere. I mean, go call your husband. I mean, like, do you have to have a husband to receive this water? I mean, why, why are you, Jesus, why are you asking her about her husband? You see, with, what's, with this one statement, Jesus exposes her deepest problem. Jesus exposes her darkest secret. Jesus doesn't just say, yeah, here you go. Believe in Jesus, pray this prayer, and you're in. No, before Jesus is going to tell her that he is the one who can save her, the one who could redeem her, Jesus brings her face to face with her sin. And Jesus looks at this woman and he says, go call your husband. Now of all the things that she wanted to hear that afternoon that was one thing that she wanted to keep private. That was one thing that she didn't want to discuss with anybody. He says, "Ah, I have no husband. Can't call anybody." And partly it's true. And the statement in verse 18, Jesus says, "Listen, you're right. You're right. You have no husband. for you have had five husbands." And the one whom you now have is not your husband. This you said truly. Now, I think there was a long, long pause between verse 18 and verse 19. This woman just met the stranger. And the stranger is sitting at the well. He knows every detail of her life. He says, you have had five husbands. Husbands. And you're living with the guy right now, but he is not your husband. You see, with this one statement, Jesus exposes her heart. You see, this woman longed for satisfaction. The satisfaction, not of the water that you would get every single day, but she wanted to satisfy herself. And in her case, it was men. she tried to use in order to satisfy herself. It was one after another, after another, after another, after another, and now she's on the sixth man, and she's still not happy. Jesus just brings up this one thing about her life, her darkest secrets, her deepest pain, and she says, listen, you've had five men, and you are still not satisfied. You are still not happy. Now, if you think about this, this woman who had five husbands, and is living with a different guy at this moment, you shouldn't wonder why she showed up too well outside of the city at noon. You see, she wanted to stay away from all the people. She wanted to... Be private so that nobody would see her. Nobody would shame her. Nobody would point fingers at her. She was a and so she was willing to travel in the heat of the day to go to that well to get some water because she needed that water. This was a woman of bad reputation, ashamed, guilt-ridden, shunned, written off by society. And Here's this man who knows everything about her, her darkest secrets, And yet he's still talking to her. Yet he's still offering living water to her. You see, with this one statement, Jesus is bringing her face to face with her reality. Listen, woman. You have a bigger problem than the fact that you're thirsty every day and you have to come to this well. You have a deeper thirst all the way down there. And you've been trying to satisfy it with one guy after another and after another. And you can't satisfy your soul. You can't satisfy yourself. Now we read this account. And this woman is not an anomaly. It's not just this one-off somewhere. I mean, sure, most of us do not have five or six women or men in our lives. But every single person is... One way or another is seeking to satisfy his soul. Now, we all go to different wells. We all have different means of satisfying ourselves, but the reality is the same that every single person without God has an unsatisfied heart. And you're going to try to satisfy it with all kinds of things. Could be money, could be drugs could be relationships as it was with this woman could be control sex legalism self-righteousness and the list can go on and on and on and on and on you can examine your own life and you can see the things that you've been trying to use in order to be happy in order to be fulfilled in order to be satisfied only to find out that you are just as thirsty as when you started this is not a new problem Jesus exposes the problem of humanity from Genesis chapter 3. This is what happened. Man has turned on God, walked away from God, and as a result of that is now seeking to satisfy itself with all kinds of things. To the prophet Jeremiah, in Jeremiah chapter 2 verse 13, God says to his people, he says, For my people have committed two evils. Number one, they have forsaken me. And number two, Actually, they have forsaken me, the fountain of living water. Kind of connects to our verse here. And what what did they do? They hew out for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. They go to different wells trying to drink again and again, and the water that is found in those wells cannot satisfy you. This woman was seeking to satisfy herself, and in her case, she was using men to do that. And Jesus is looking at her, and he's saying, listen, you are broken. You are shunned by society. You are rejected. And he's saying to her that I have something that can satisfy you. The problem of humanity is this. He says, you forsake that which satisfies, and you try to find satisfaction in that which does not And then you wonder why your life is messed up. Because you've been drinking of all kinds of different wells that cannot satisfy your heart. Now at this point, we have to be careful so that we don't slip into this man-centered gospel. Because I can tell you, listen, come to Jesus. And Jesus can satisfy you. Jesus can give you everything you ever wanted. Jesus can satisfy your soul and you won't have to go anywhere else. To find satisfaction is that true yeah that's true is that the whole truth no because if you come to jesus only seeking to satisfy yourself you'll be disappointed jesus is not going to be used by anybody just for the mere purpose of satisfaction that's why you'll find people who say you know i've tried jesus it doesn't work Why? Because I tried drugs, it doesn't work. I tried women, it doesn't work. I tried work, it doesn't work. I tried Jesus, it doesn't work. I'm trying to satisfy myself, and just doesn't work. Imagine a guy who goes on a romantic dinner with his wife, she had Valentine's, sits across the table from her and says, babe, my highest purpose in life is to be happy. And you make me happy. And as long as you make me happy, we're together. You think that relationship is going to last? No. That date will be the last one. But what if that same guy goes to that same dinner with his wife and says to her, babe, I love you, and I want to be with you no matter what. The vows that we've given for better or for worse, for richer or for poor, until death do us part are true, no matter what. You think that relationship is going to last? Yeah. You think they're going to be satisfied? Yeah. Why? Because they're looking for satisfaction. No, because satisfaction is a byproduct of knowing that person, of being in love with that person. But if you're just seeking satisfaction, you're just trying to use Jesus. And Jesus will not be used by anybody. That's what we see In this text, can God satisfy you? Absolutely. But how does he do it? Let's go to our third point. Men's satisfaction is a byproduct of true worship. That is not your aim. You're not aiming for that. If you're aiming to be satisfied, you're aiming for wrong thing. You see, once Jesus tells her everything about her, And perhaps John just records here that she had five husbands and Jesus says that to her that you're living with another guy and he's not your husband. But perhaps Jesus said more to her because she goes back to town and she says, he told me everything about me. He said everything about me. He knows everything about me. And yet I found acceptance with him. Now some argue as you get to verse 18 or verse 19 that when Jesus exposes her, all of a sudden she tries to shift she tries to talk about religion all of a sudden. But I don't think so. I don't think so because at that moment when she saw that Jesus knows everything about her and yet Jesus is offering free gift to her, she says to him, Sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. I mean, this woman would never talk to a prophet. She was rejected by everybody. She couldn't go anywhere. And so she all of a sudden sees that there's this religious guy, a prophet, a guy who knows everything about me. And the thing that was bothering her her entire life all of a sudden, she comes and she asks that question. Now, Jesus is listening to her. Jesus is willing to respond to her, and he will respond to her. I think her attitude here is like, yeah, I see that I'm messed up, but where do I go to deal with my sin? Where do I go to worship? Because she understood, even though they had a messed up religion, she understood that you got to go to God, and you got to go to God at a certain place, at a certain time, in a certain way. And so she asked Jesus, he says, I see that you are a prophet. And look at verses 20 through 24. I'm going to read this, four verses. And see if you can catch what, the, what these verses are about. Listen for a word that is repeated again and again and again. Our fathers worshipped in this mountain. And you people say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But an hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people the Father seeks to be his worshipers. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. You get the point? I think these verses are about worship. I mean, if we missed that, might as well go home. She says, hey, how do I deal with my sin? Where do I worship? You see, we have to ask the question, what is worship? Worship is not a slow song that we sing before sermon, right? We sing praise in the beginning, kind of fast, and then worship, slow. Worship is not even singing. Singing is part of worship, but that's not what worship is. It's not defined by singing. Because you know you can say, hey, come over, because we have great worship. What do you mean by that? Oh, well, we have great singing. But Jesus doesn't identify here. He's not, he's not talking about singing on this mountain or singing on some other mountain. That's not what he's talking about here. John Piper succinctly summarizes or gives this definition of worship. He says, true worship is valuing or treasuring of God above all else. Valuing or treasuring of God above all else. Now, we know there was a disagreement between Jews and Samaritans about worship. The Jews say you got to come to Jerusalem, you got to come to the temple, and only there you can worship God. Samaritans, who accepted only the first five books of the Bible, thought the best thing that they can do is they can worship on Mount Gerizim. You remember when God says you're going to enter the Promised Land? And in the Promised Land, you're going to walk in and you're going to pronounce blessings and you're going to pronounce cursing. The blessings are pronounced from the Mount Gerizim. And Samaritans took that and says, hey, listen, we're going to build temple here. They built the temple, which was later destroyed, but it was still considered by them this holy place, a place of worship. And so she says, we have a disagreement. You Jews say it's in Jerusalem, and we say it's on this mountain, Mount Gerizim. Now Jesus says, listen, you got it all wrong. You got it all wrong. He denounces the worship of Samaritans. In verse 22, he says, you worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. He says, listen, at least on this point, Jews got it right. God explicitly said in the Old Testament that he has chosen Jerusalem as the place of worship. And if you want to worship, you go to Jerusalem. Salvation is from the Jews, not from Samaritans. Why? Genesis 12, God chose Abraham. From him, he started the nation of Israel. And he gave a promise to him that through him, all the nations will be blessed. The worship that God prescribed was prescribed to the nation of Israel. The Messiah who was to come was going to come from the nation of Israel. And that's what Jesus is saying to her. Listen, worship is from the Jews. Salvation is from the Jews because Messiah who's going to save is from the Jews. However, he does not here says, just go to Jerusalem and do everything that they're doing there. Because elsewhere we know what Jesus thought of worship in Jerusalem. In Matthew chapter 15, Jesus says, to religious leaders, to people who worship in Jerusalem, in the temple, according to what God prescribed. He says, you hypocrites, you hypocrites, rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you. These people honor me with their lips. They go through the motions in the place that I have commended them. But their heart is far away from me. But in vain do they worship me, teaching us doctrines, the precepts of men. Jerusalem had the right location for the old testament but the worship that was offered there was displeasing to God because he says their heart is far away from me that's why Jesus says in verse 21 woman believe me an hour is coming and we're in that hour right now and now when neither in Jerusalem nor in on this mountain will they worship the father woman external location is not the issue where you worship does not matter. I have come to demolish and get rid of all of that. Jews had the right location, but their worship was not accepted. So ask the question what kind of worship does God accept? Look at verse 23. Jesus says, An hour is coming, and now is when the true worshipers stop right there. True worshipers. That implies that there are false worshipers. Which does not mean that as long as you're sincere, God accepts you. No. He says there are true worshipers and there are false worshipers. Muslims, Christians, Buddhists, and whoever else you want to put in that, they don't worship the same God. We're not all climbing the same mountain just taking different trails up there as some say. No, he said there are true worshipers and there are false worshipers. There's true worship and there's false worship. And Jesus says that an hour is coming when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. What kind of worship does God accept? First, the worship that God accepts has a right object. In verse 22, he says, You worship what you do not know. Whatever it is that Samaritans worship, you don't know. But he says here, verse 23, when the true worshipers will worship the Father. Notice how many times the Father appears here. In verse 21, he says, nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. In verse 23, will worship the Father. At the end of verse 23, such People, the Father, seeking to be his worshipers. You have to worship the right God in order for your worship to be accepted. If you worship something that you do not know, that worship is not, is not accepted by God. If you worship some kind of pagan God that you think you know, that worship is not pleasing to God. Your worship that God accepts must have a right object. Second, the worship that God accepts is primarily internal Rather than external. Notice Jesus says it's not about this mountain. It's not about that mountain. But the worshipers that God is seeking for himself are those worshipers who will worship the Father. First of all in the spirit. And this word spirit does not refer to the Holy Spirit. But it refers to your human spirit. What Jesus is trying to emphasize here is that worship is not just going to a certain place and doing certain things. Worship is what happens on the inside. He accused Jewish people of going to the right place. But he says, your problem is that your heart is not in it. A different word for your internal being. What Jesus is saying here, that the worship that God accepts is worship that comes from inside. It comes from the heart that is welling up with joy. That's where worship comes from. You don't have to go to church to worship. You go to church to worship, that's true. But you don't have to go to church. It's not about this building. It's not about location. God says the worship that God accepts is the worship that comes from the heart. And therefore, if you go to church, you sing all the right songs, you give all the money, you do whatever you do, but if your heart is not in it, he says, you are just like the Jews in the Old Testament who did all the rituals, but their worship was not accepted. You worship God, he says, first of all, in your heart. When your heart is welling up, inside of you, and you give glory to God. So worship has the right object. Worship is internal, primarily. And thirdly, the worship that God accepts must be according to the revealed truth. Notice he says here, the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. It's not just to say, you know, in my heart, I just worship God. And you are just so sincere because, you know, your heart is just welling up with joy. And you just want to give glory and praise to God. But if that glory and that praise is not according to the truth that is revealed in the word, it's not accepted. He says, the worship that I accept, yes, it is internal. But it is also governed by the truth. You see, hell will be populated with sincere people. People who sincerely thought that they're worshiping, not not only sincerely thought that they're worshiping, they were worshiping sincerely. But they did not have the right object of worship and they did not worship according to the revealed truth. And so Jesus says when you worship, when you give glory to God, you got to make sure that it is within the parameters of the revealed truth of God. I am the one who prescribes the way you worship me. You know, in the Old Testament, you have all those things. You read through the books of first five books of the Bible, and God says you got to do this, and you got to do this, and you got to do this. And you like, man, come on, can we just chill out? Just, just, just come however you want. No, you can't come however you want. God says I determine how you come to me. I determine what you have to do to come to me. And so in this case, it's the same thing. He says you got to come to me on my terms, and you're going to do what I am telling you to do to be accepted. And so Jesus says you must worship in spirit and in truth. So if we summarize this, worship that God accepts springs forth in the heart full of gratitude for what God is and what he has done as revealed in the scripture scripture defines worship scriptures defines parameters of worship and if your worship is in some way outside of those parameters it is not accepted to God you see worship is not about going to a place worship it's about getting to know a person. So this woman, she hears this, and obviously she can't put all this together completely. And she says, I know Messiah is coming. Samaritans were waiting for Messiah. They had Deuteronomy 18:15 when Moses says, hey, God will send you a prophet like me. They were expecting Messiah. And she says, listen, when the Messiah comes, he will explain it all to us. It's very complicated. It's all difficult to understand. He's going to come and he's going to explain. And this leads to this amazing statement in verse 26. When Jesus looks at her and says, "I, who speak to you, am He?" Literally, He says, "I am the one who speaks to you." Going back to Exodus three fourteen, where God says, "My name is I am." All the I am statements in, John, in the Gospel of John, right here. Jesus says to her, "I am the Messiah." Wow. What a claim. This guy who's just sitting at the well, he says, By the way, you know all the things that you heard about Messiah who's coming? Right here. And I am the one who is speaking to you right now. And to whom does he say that? Not religious leaders in Jerusalem, not even his disciples. But he's revealing his true identity to this scandalous woman. And he says, Listen, I am the Messiah, the Redeemer, the one who you've been waiting for, who would come and make all things clear. I am the one who is speaking to you. Truly, they say that Jesus can say from the guttermost to the uttermost. Listen, no matter where you are, in the darkest gutter, Jesus is willing to meet you right where you are and reveal Himself. Now her actions are indicative of what happened to her because we're told here that she leaves her water pot in verse 28. She left her water pot and she went into the city and said to man, this woman who came to this well in the middle of the day because she tried to avoid people. All of a sudden she runs back to the city, catches everyone that she can and she starts talking to people. What happened to her? Well, she probably got saved. That's what happened to her. Changed. She runs back and she's no longer ashamed. She's no longer hiding. But she runs to everybody and she's telling them, listen, I found Messiah. You got to go out there and check it out. He told me everything about me and he can help you too. And so she preached a bunch of people believed. As a result of that, at the end of the chapter, we read that many more believed and they said to her, verse 42, they said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe. Notice she said something and they believed. She went to them, preached the gospel to them about Jesus who's sitting at the well. They believed. Many more came out of the city, listened to Jesus, believed and got saved. There was revival in Samaria because this woman, scandalous woman, believed in Jesus. She got saved. As a result of that, many got saved as well. As we draw our time to close. See, it's not an accident that you're here. Because God is still in the business of saving people. Isn't that what he's doing? The Father is seeking worshipers. He was seeking worshipers back then on that road. And he's seeking worshipers today. He's still doing the same thing. And he still makes today divine appointments with people where you get to hear and when you get to meet Jesus and he's still in the business of saving people. Perhaps you can relate to this woman in some way. You've been trying to satisfy yourself with all kinds of things. Now, I don't know what it is. You know it yourself. And you went there again and again and again only to find out that you were just as thirsty as you were at the beginning. Except now you just had additional guilt, shame, pain, and scars. You know, I want to tell you on the authority of this text, that Jesus can meet you wherever you are. He already knows your darkest secrets. He's aware of your darkest closets of the soul. And he's been there and he knows it all. And he's still offering the same gift to you of the living water. If you never truly met Jesus the way he's presented here, today is a day for you. But most of us, had this meeting with Jesus. Most of us believed in Jesus. As you read this account, you are reminded that Jesus met you where you were when you didn't deserve it and he saved you and he gives you life. But is it possible that we as believers also run back to some of those wells and we try to get a sip and get a drink and try to satisfy ourselves? I mean, if you're honest with yourself, there are some things that all of us need to repent of. Because we still are trying to find some kind of satisfaction because we forget that Jesus made a promise that you will never thirst again if you truly know me as I am. As you examine your heart and if you see that your heart is not satisfied with Jesus, that means that something in your worship went off the rails. And may God, by his spirit through his word, reveal to you what that is so that you can return back to the well that gives ultimate satisfaction so that you would thirst no more. Our Father, we thank you that you are a saving God, that you are a God who sought us out and met us on our roads, on our paths, and you have revealed Christ to us And giving us living water that satisfies. Forgive us where we try to run back and get a sip of something that doesn't. But may we return once again, day after day, to that well that satisfies. Christ Jesus, we praise you for meeting us and saving us. Thank you. In your name we pray. Amen.